Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So how did everyone spend your week off? I spent two and a half weeks off, actually. Oh, really? Susan, I don't even recognize you. Where you were look you again? So I look rested. so rested. I spent two and a half weeks in Italy mm. with my family. Moving on. <laughs> there were villas involved, lots of excellent coffee and alcohol. I, I don't even I want to we hear friends, anymore. But... I'm crying already. You know what? And I expected to like come back with like a sense of perspective that like how anxious <laughs> I'd felt about Trump was like that was just Trump derangement syndrome and I was going to come back having not engaged with the news cycle quite as much <laughs> and like realized like it wasn't as bad as I thought. How'd that and then, work like, for you? I landed and started like reading all the stuff I'd missed. It was just like, oh my God, it's so much worse than so, I really had comprehended. So the moral of that story is <laughs> Don't relax. Don't relax. Never go on vacation. Don't try to don't try to unwind. Don't choke. <laughs> yeah, don't don't, don't choke. you might end up in you might come back to find yourself in kind of a Russian chokehold because yeah. you've you've let yourself uh, let your be, guard down. You've let your guard down. Exactly. So Quinta and I were in Israel for the week. Um, but that was not relaxing. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where was I? I went to Michigan. Woo! <laughs> It was it was so romantic. It was so out there. Yeah, no, I I went to my high school reunion hey. in mid Michigan, and got a dose of real America, where they speak with a twang, um, and it was it was a fond reminiscence of my high school days. But one thing really came home to me over the three days I spent in Michigan. Me and my high school friends. Drank a lot <laughs> in high school or now. I, 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 you know, I don't know if it ever really stopped, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, the return was quite a contrast. Did you enjoy Israel, Ben? Uh, so, as everybody in this room uh, knows, except Tammy, who's never been on one. Ironically, I, you know, I uh, help run these these. Uh, delegations of national security lawyers to Israel for for uh, an organization called Academic Exchange. And uh, the trips are always uh, spectacularly interesting. Uh, uh, and the food is fabulous. Oh, the, the, food. the food is really great. And the alcohol is plentiful. Um, and probably a better quality than the alcohol in mid-Michigan. No doubt. <laughs> and yet it is all quite exhausting. Um, and uh, so I returned unrefreshed and, uh, um, you know, with a kind of Israeli chokehold. I stayed here. Did you have a Mo- staycation? <laughs> What's uh, that? Uh, <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> You wanted to be a journalist, Shane. This is your choice. This is the life that I chose. Just repeat. Well, you look like you're rested. You have kind of a tan. You've got the the collar unbuttoned. (laughs) Yes, you look like a man with a well tended cucumber garden. (laughs) Beaten down by life. Spending a lot of time in the garden these days. All right. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Russian Chokehold Edition. I am Shane Harris from the Wall Street Journal. 
after a nice two-week vacation and a long b-roll intro welcome back guys hi the jungle studio with the I whole missed gang you all i did i missed you tomorrow guys susan too. and ben are welcome all here. back quinta is here although well, you're not going to hear her today but she's listening to all of you the gang's all together the gang's all together so let's jump right into it Obama may not have responded forcefully enough to Russian chokeholds, but is Trump responding at all? A diplomatic crisis in the Gulf is the first major test of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, and the Supreme Court agrees to take up Trump's travel ban. Um, Let's start with the, for those who missed the sort of magnum opus of the Washington Post in which a former Obama administration official was quoted as saying on the response to Russian interference, I feel like we choked. Um, it was a pretty massive reporting job that kind of put together what I don't want to. I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to take a position on saying the lackluster or the underwhelming response by the Obama administration. That's why you are all here. Um, <laughs> but clearly laying out what seemed to be a fairly agonizing series of debates, conversations, uh, deliberations <clears throat> on how, when, if, whether, how strong, how public, how secretively to respond to Russian interference in the election, which, by the way, it seems like nobody was in doubt at the time that it was actually happening. Um, Susan, I actually want to talk, at, kick this to you first, um, since you've been in Italy and have some international perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm very worldly now. Because one of the things that struck me about this story is that, and, and I think it's not maybe dissimilar from things that journalists go through when there are things that we're struggling with that we know we believe and want to push out, but we're debating when's the right time to do it and how do we do it. I mean, as somebody who worked in an intelligence agency, is familiar with the interagency process that goes on when you're trying to decide whether to disclose what is effectively intelligence information. I mean, we knew the Russians were doing this because we were spying on the Russians. And apparently PS had pretty damn good sources in the course of it, which seems to be something we haven't spent a lot of time on. But what was your reaction to this? And, 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 you know, did you sympathize with the people who were struggling about whether to come out and say, hey, the Russians are doing this only weeks before an election. Yeah, I mean, look, so um, there's, it's sort of spectacular reporting, but there actually isn't that much that we didn't already basically know. Uh, just from sort of reading the temperature yeah, yeah. and watching it what It was the happened. stitching of it together. Exactly. It sort of, but it really does sort of give far more vivid color into what exactly the timeline and, and this, the nature of these deliberations. And there were sort of two things that really uh, sort of, I don't know, stood out to me. Um, one of which is actually something that we we talked a lot about in um, in the context of Comey's decision, and that's that all of this sort of risk analysis was being conducted against the assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and that all of these decisions look dramatically different in light of the fact that we know Trump actually did win. And they even look really different if your working assumption instead is there's a real possibility Donald Trump is going to win. And so that's why it's a little bit, it's it's sort of stunning to read this stuff. I, I would say it's a lackluster response. I think, I think you know, an, an administration official said, I feel like, I sort of feel like we choked. Yeah, the rest of us sort of feel like you choked too. Um, but I do think you have to sort of apply put it all in the context of that's the ultimate assumption here. Um, so that was sort of the the one thing. Um, you know, the other is that, you know, this was just a continuation of the same struggle over sort of deterrence that this administration has been having for eight years, essentially, um, right, which is uh, yeah, being slow to recognize when a 
sort of cyber incident um, is something worth responding to. And then sort of being aware of what are the kind of options on the table, but not really having a plan for in in either immediate uh, situations or over the long term, right, multiple interactions with nation states, sort of a longer term strategy. Yeah. So I just to pick up on that last point, I think that one of the things that really struck me reading this article, and I agree that what it did so well was build the narrative of what happened when and how the Obama administration weighed its response. But, you know, the sort of this was going on for a while and it's going to keep going on. And um, the Obama administration's kind of inability to deter the Russians from trying it in the first place um, sets up a, a, a much harder task for the current administration, which is even less inclined to try and deter at all. But a, a colleague of mine made a good point in reaction to this article, which is that, you know, the Obama administration had trouble deterring the Russians because they thought of everything as linked together, all the issues oh. they were working on around the world. And they were constantly kind of worrying about the trade-offs. If we push back on this, are the Russians going to make us pay on that? You know, if we push back on Ukraine, are they going to punish us in the Iran talks? And and the result is that they were never willing to risk um, taking steps that would make their adversaries, but particularly Putin, unhappy because they thought it would risk other core objectives of theirs in international affairs. And and that was the other thing that really jumped out at me from this detailed narrative is that, you know, this administration deliberated itself into knots um, on this issue. Sounds and like Syria. Sounds like Syria. Yes, right, sounds like, right. you know, everything else we I have they read. They themselves out of it. They yeah. I don't know if they talked themselves well, out of it, but not, they, like, they talked themselves through the permutations to the point of immobility. Right. You I talk yourself into a box. Really. I, I think that's such an important point. It's they were so afraid of the cycle, uh, of getting into the cycle of escalation. They made the only clearly wrong decision, which was to do nothing, right? They, they just became paralyzed. Well, or to do too little. But I think that was one other maybe smaller thing that jumped out at me is that when they finally decided to go and inform the leadership in Congress, the partisan polarization was so intense that Republican leaders simply didn't accept it at face value, this judgment from the intelligence community and warning from the administration. And so they wouldn't play ball. Look, I want to say a couple words in defense of the Obama administration on this. Not more than a couple, but a couple. Uh, first of all, uh, a lot of what we know is what they learned over a period of time. And there is, I think, uh, the frog in the heating water quality of this, that when you learn things incrementally, each individual piece of knowledge that you have may not be the trigger for action. And I think that was, uh, I definitely got a sense of that through this, uh, uh, through this story. Uh, the second thing is, I think the point that Susan started with is a very important one, that their course of action uh, makes a lot more sense if you imagine uh, that Hillary Clinton wins and that you uh, therefore have a, a, a transition between administrations that is committed to, uh, say, not 
representing Russian interests, but actually countering them. And I think that's actually, that defense is substantially the same defense, by the way, that I would make to some degree anyway of uh, the way Jim Comey handled uh, matters, which is, you know, that uh, insult, you know, being completely upfront with Congress, being totally honest about what the state of the relationship is, is a, a state of the investigation is with respect to Clinton and the emails is a very good operating procedure if she in fact then wins and uh, and then you can't be said to have hidden something about her. Right. Imagine what they'd done. Right. Imagine if she'd won, she'd won and they'd adopted a different course of action. Exactly. Right. And, and – you know, and then of course you have this potential political accountability to her. She might turn around and fire you and be angry, but uh, you have been completely above board. And the whole thing works a lot less well if the, from Nate Silver's point of view, thirty percent chance, or from the New York Times upshot point of view, ten percent chance of Trump winning comes to fruition. And I think a lot of people rounded in a lot of positions of authority, uh, mentally rounded or subconsciously even rounded the chances of Trump's winning to zero yeah. um, and proceeded on the basis of that. And I see that written all across this story. That, yeah, that seems to me like to be the really big takeaway in this is that at the end of the day, everyone bet that Hillary was going to win. But the, and the, so that tempers the response. I remember in, after I remember before the election, reporting a story talking to u.s officials saying like well we're not really too keen on doing a response now because we want to wait till she's elected and then she'll take part in crafting that because it'll be her responsibility to implement it oh and by the way she was the victim of it too i mean you had this sense that everyone was just let's just get through the election then we'll take care of it but then in that light how do you defend the ultimate report that comes out in december right this is like the election interference report which provides almost no information right only top line conclusions now we understand why but that's the one piece of this that i do think is harder to justify considering what was known at the time well not providing more and and also not doing more at that time when they when they ultimately did decide to retaliate it was in the article's description a set of of uh, actions toward the Russians that had been on the table for other reasons for a long time. Right. So it was sort of a minimal response as right. well. Minimal information to the public and a minimal response after they already knew that Trump was coming into office. Um, well, I don't know that this positions us to know much more about how we would respond in the future. I, I think it's but... important that we stop looking backwards, Shane. I think it's important to be forward. <coughs> well, the irony here is this actually is the problem didn't just go away because Trump is elected. This right. was a really hard problem for Obama. It's actually facing the Trump administration. Correct. And to the extent the Obama administration can be criticized for essentially overthinking the problem, we now have evidence the Trump administration is non-thinking the problem yeah. well, and we're going to we'll be talking about that more at the end of this segment but I mean I will, that's going to become I think a subject of conversation going forward for all of us including on the podcast but I did find it just as a kind of to put a button on it for a second very interesting that this week you are seeing reports coming out about administration officials being very frustrated that the president seems to not want to respond to this because putting aside whether he does believe it was Russia or he doesn't believe it was Russia, putting aside, you know, um, how he's spoken publicly about the investigation and his attempts to try and apparently get 
parts of this shutdown that may involve him. Um, it seems like there is pretty broad agreement in the U.S. national security establishment that the Russians did it, and they're going to do it again, and we've got to be prepared for that. And if the commander-in-chief is not engaged on that issue, that becomes a whole new kind of crisis point, it seems. Although, to be fair, there were people who criticized Obama for not taking the threat of Russia yes, seriously Yes, that's enough. absolutely right. So this is maybe this is not a symptom of the Trump administration. This is actually just a... Um, uh, a way are, of looking at the world. Uh, that <laughs> but there are people within the intelligence community who don't believe the Cold War really ended. And there right. are people that, that do. And that division is is a complex one that animates And that a was lot. pronounced in the Obama administration, for sure. It was. You know, um, the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, uh, was interviewed yesterday by Michelle Flournoy at the Center for New American Security annual conference. And she asked him specifically about Russian influence operations. And he said it was a big part of the national security strategy that he and his team are now working on. And he spoke pretty specifically about the combination that the Russians use of cyber information operations and organized criminal networks. So it sounded like, you know, he was thinking about it pretty holistically and trying to build it into a document over which he has a lot of control. That's, that's a very significant statement, actually. <laughs> um, all right. Let's move on to another senior administration official, Rex Tillerson. Tamara, Rex Tillerson is over it. He's, he's so, had it. He's so over it. He's done. <laughs> I don't think he's done. I don't think we should start the Tillerson Death Watch edition. Yet. No, no, not, not no quite more. Though. No more Death Watches on this show. Re we Rex got, Tillerson we got... is like, I'm too old and too rich for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> we got we got so much crap on Twitter for calling. That last one, the, the the sessions Death Watch edition. So I think we have to retire Death Watches. <laughs> yeah, from yeah. It was just Fig accidental, figure accidental, ill-timed. We yes. apologize. It didn't. It was not how we meant it. It's not what it okay, was. So this is so definitely about not the Tillerson Death Watch. Moving it's, on. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even the Tillerson retirement edition but yet. Tam, yet. The, the the Cutter crisis, I think, has sort of. You know, maybe this is sort of like the, the last straw in a bit, but the, the, the crisis in the Gulf and how Tillerson has had to respond to it, as it seems to me, pointed up a lot of frustrations that he has in this administration. You know, what, what are we seeing and what are you making of uh, some of the responses we've seen coming from him in recent days? Sure. So it gets to this whole question that we've we've debated over many episodes of, you know, the autonomy of um, national security cabinet officials relative to the president and how are they going to manage issues when they have an inexperienced president with a very odd set of instincts. And, you know, Mattis, in many ways, the defense secretary seems to be running a, a kind of on his own track, doing his own thing. Tillerson, so far, we had seen as someone who was working very hard to have a close relationship with the president, being very low key, not speaking out a lot in public. Uh, and trying to have as much face time as he could with the commander in chief. The Qatar crisis sort of put in full public glare, however, a, a gap between Tillerson and the White House where Tillerson was trying actively to mediate this dispute and the White House was Pub the president on Twitter was publicly undercutting him within hours, and it happened twice in a row. And so it sort of became inescapable that these guys were not, in fact, synced up. So now all of a sudden, the quiet, low-key politics secretary of state seems to have some friends leaking to the press. <laughs> and we have now two articles in the space of days 
one longer piece in the American Conservative uh, about uh, Trump and Tillerson and the Qatar crisis, and one in Politico just yesterday uh, about a very um, confrontational meeting that Tillerson apparently had with some White House staff over personnel. And in both of these stories, there are close associates of the Secretary of State uh, giving uh, quotes to to the journalists. So in the American Conservative, one said, uh, Rex put two and two together, his close associate says, and concluded that this absolutely vacuous kid, that would be Jared Kushner, mm. was running a second foreign policy out of the White House family quarters. Otaiba, that's the Emirati ambassador in Washington, weighed in with Jared and Jared weighed in with Trump. What a mess. Rex is just exhausted. He can't get any of his appointments approved and is running around the world cleaning up after a president whose primary foreign policy advisor is a 36-year-old wow. amateur. So, says from a person familiar with Mr. Teller's <laughs> thinking. Right. So dishing, but <laughs> not just right dishing. At the time. <laughs> you know, this isn't just some White House aide. This is wow. the president's son-in-law yeah. he's dishing on. And yeah. so it sounds like, you know, Tillerson is willing to kind of push this to the wall and either get the autonomy he wants on appointments and the authority on foreign policy or he's willing to walk. But I, but I think the, but I think the there's an important additional element of that, which is that the same thing is happening to Mattis. The same thing, I'm sure, not on personnel, but on all kinds of things is happening. Can you imagine running an intelligence agency in this administration? You know, if, if you're in Pompeo's shoes or in Dan Coates's shoes. Um, and so my question is, you know, without starting a death watch, how long is it before the, you know, axis of adults becomes the axis of former officials, right? And, and what, just think of the memoirs. Right. And what happens when, when, you know, I'm sure when they start resigning, it'll be in this very dignified way that it has, you know, nothing to do with not wanting to make America great again and nothing to do with the president's leadership. But, you know, they really have discovered that they want to spend time with their families and stuff. But I, I, I can't imagine we're going to get to the end of the year without a significant resignation or set of resignations in in the foreign policy and national security I space. Agree mm. um, you agree with that? I think so. I mean, I was actually talking with colleagues about this recently, of how long does Tillerson stay? And even before this flare-up, I think that among some State Department reporters, there was an assumption that he wouldn't stay probably more than a year anyway. And they had various reasons for thinking that. But it occurred to me that as this is now happening... Um, you know, maybe they just accelerate that timeline a bit. And I wonder to what extent someone like McMaster even wonders, hey, is it possible I might even be more influential not being in this administration? And if that happens, do you then see a bunch of former officials who kind of take up, I mean, opposition and exile is too strong of a word, but who become the kind of people who will talk on background, frankly, about what they saw as a way of trying to I don't know, still steer the ship? I think that's, I mean, I, I tend to agree there will be a major resignation by the end of the year. One thing I'm still not clear on, um, despite all of the uh, Gulf crisis experts that have emerged on Twitter, is what the various sides are pushing for in all of this. Um, so I 
um, while I was on vacation in Italy, I don't know if I've mentioned that I've just returned from this vacation, (laughs) Um, was with a friend who runs, um, who uh, works uh, out of Dubai on a a very large grocery store chain that that, um, supplies uh, Qatar with, you know, with groceries. Um, And he was talking about like the business equities of what they did whenever they, you know, they found out they were going to need to look at new routes and, you know, the Qataris, uh, you know, buying cows to ensure that they had milk and uh, just Qatar, which imports almost all of its food. Exactly. And sort of thinking about the business then. And one of the things that sort of struck me was, you know, basically the the my understanding was, well, you know, things are are maybe difficult or more expensive, but but functioning. Um, but they wouldn't be if all of a sudden you couldn't do business with any of them, right? That you have to think about different routes in, but eh, you could still make it work. But of course, if you weren't able to operate anymore, none of the Emirati companies could operate. They were sort of sanctioned, that would be really different. So with those sort of what are whenever we talk about the Emiratis, you know, um, interceding with Jared Kushner, what do they want? What do what's the Tillerson Kushner divide here even? Yeah, so I I think that gets to a really interesting set of questions about American strategy in the region because mm. it seemed as though Tillerson and Mattis and the president were out in Riyadh all on the same page, which is priority number one is ISIS, priority number two is Iran, or maybe they're both top priority, and all of our regional partners agree with us on these priorities. And then as soon as they get back, boom, there's this rift within our group of regional partners. And the rift actually doesn't have anything to do either with ISIS or Iran. Um, It really has a lot to do with uh, the independence of guttery foreign policy from Saudi Arabia, which is the kind of 800-pound gorilla in the Gulf, number one. And number two, the perception of the Saudis and Emiratis that the gutteries are in their independence, supporting political movements in the region that these other guys don't like. So it gets to some very fundamental issues about um, who drives our politics and in which direction. And as a result, neither side is particularly inclined to compromise. The list of demands that the Emiratis and Saudis handed out is basically a set of demands that would subordinate guttery foreign policy to Saudi foreign policy and make Qatar, in that sense, a lot more like Bahrain, a little kind of principality that lives under Saudi protection. And your sense is that Tillerson is is against that and the sort of the Kushner wing is for that. I mean, like, to the extent we're reading tea leaves, that's... Or can I even put like a a Uh sharper point on it, which is, is it too much to say that the Trump administration's foreign policy is whatever Yusuf al-Otaiba and Mohammed bin Salman Harold Chelger and Kushner they want it to be. Well, that certainly seems to be the contention of Rex Tillerson's friends who are leaking to the press. Well, it yes. seems like an utterly plausible <laughs> contention, doesn't it? I yeah, mean... Right, but this also goes to Ben's point about you know cabinet secretaries and, and the choices that they face. I think one of the reasons why we see this coming to the fore with Tillerson is that he doesn't have a lot of independent assets to work with, to leverage in order to enforce no his own view. Well, first of all, he has no staff, but all the State Department has are words, right? right? Mediation, diplomacy. Jim Mattis, on the other hand, has boats and planes and troops. And, and a lot of people. And a lot of people. And yeah. so while Tillerson was making these statements about relaxing the Emirati-Saudi blockade and mediating the crisis, 
What was Mattis doing? He had two U.S. Navy ships visit a port in Qatar. He had the Qatari defense minister visit Washington and sign a deal to buy F-16s. In other words, he used his independent assets and the autonomy that Trump has given him to demonstrate to the White House the value of Qatari security cooperation with the United States. And so that's why Mattis is probably likely to stick around because he can enforce his will Mm -hmm. in ways that Tillerson cannot. I just want to point out that in the early days of the Republic, you know, there was a, a, a Francophile contingent, the, 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 the Jeffersonians, and there was an Anglophile uh, contingent, even, you know, relatively a- quite soon after the, the Revolutionary War, the John Jays and, and, and Alexander Hamiltons. And now in our, uh, and they really fought it out in the, in the Washington administration. That was a, that, you know, that was a, like one of the knockdown drag out things. Uh, and now we have a guttery, and a Saudi contingent in our foreign policy debate within the administration. That's the, that's wow. the, uh, Come a long I, way. I just, I just, I just put that we'll out there. We declare neutrality. Yeah, exactly. We need, <laughs> there, I don't know. I don't know what you make of that, but there it is. That's going to be the next hit musical. <laughs> Tillerson. Kush. <laughs> Tillerson. There's no singing. It's like that town in Footloose. <laughs> who's who's going who's gonna to play a diva? John Lithgow. <laughs> All right. We should make this. This is a good idea, right? We're doing this. <laughs> We're so making Tillerson. Oh, but before we do that, um, uh, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, you've heard of it, has <laughs> agreed to take up uh, Trump's executive order uh, banning travel and uh, immigration from uh, a number of countries. Authored by Judge Curium. Yeah, Judge, <laughs> in a judge Per Curium. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Per Curium. He's um, a genius. He's a genius, <laughs> Justice ben, Curium. Then do two things. One real quick and then expand on something. A, just explain the, the procedural kind of how it got here and when they're going to actually hear it. Uh, and, and B, it does seem like this has set the stage for a pretty significant um, showdown over executive authority and the power of the judiciary. So I think not. Oh, um, okay. But well. let me let me try to explain why by describing the procedural posture. So as you all will remember, the president came into office and a few days later issued a sweeping travel ban uh, affecting seven countries. When that travel ban became enmeshed in uh, all sorts of uh, legal problems, he withdrew it and replaced it with a more modest one. Uh, The more modest one was then uh, enjoined by two separate courts, uh, one in Hawaii and one in Maryland. Uh, And those injunctions were largely affirmed by two appeals courts, the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit, respectively. Um, The president... Uh, through the Solicitor General, asked the Supreme Court, A, to hear uh, the case, that is, to to review the lower court's injunctions, but secondly, to stay the injunction while it was considering it. Uh, And what the Supreme Court did uh, this week in a uh, uh, opinion that is... uh, for six justices, um, the per curiam order, um, A, accepts the case for review 
and B, allows, lifts the injunction with respect to those people that do not have some sort of bona fide relationship with people in the United States. Now, what exactly that means is uh, going to be the subject of a lot of litigation between now and October. Although apparently uh, it means your, sis- your sibling, but not your brother-in-law and not your grandmother, according to the according to the guidance sent out to consular officers today. Right. So there's all kinds of uh, there's going to be all kinds of uh, uh, discussion of that of what does and doesn't constitute a bona fide relationship. But it's what's fair to say is that the order has gone the the travel ban the limited version of the travel ban. Uh, travel ban 2.0 can now go into effect with respect to a uh, subset of the people that it purports to cover and not with respect to another subset. Now, here's the problem, the reason why it may not portend the big showdown that you're describing. Um, The travel ban by its terms applies for 90 days. Uh, And then the travel ban with respect to the pause on refugee admissions applies for 120 days. So if you count days starting now, you don't get – the travel ban will expire by the time the Supreme Court – would be ready to rev- uh, to actually rule on this. <laughs> so they, um, they were just kicking the can down the road and saying, come on, figure this out before we have to consider the case? I think, I think that's probably... <laughs> they too know how to behave like Congress. But has there been any... Ex- <laughs> like, has there been any external evidence that there actually is this 90-day review being undertaken? I've well, so, so the review, the administration's position was that the review itself was enjoined by the... Uh, by the district court in Hawaii. So when the Ninth Circuit ruled... Which seems, by the way, totally not Yeah, because they could actually, review any time Actually, want, I've gone they? back and I've looked at, the, um, I looked at the, the Hawaii district court order, and I actually think the SG is right on that. The, the order is so broad uh, that it enjoins enforcement of basically any of the substantive provisions. thinking about it? Um, well, so no. So review would be an enforcement mechanism, in other no, words. No, no, review is... Is in cap in covered by one of the provisions of the order that oh, is enjoined okay. because they and, called it out in the order, and yeah. they, they didn't say you can't do the review, but they did say this provision is enjoined, and yeah. and so the administration I think was being uh, the SG was being careful not to be in violation of a court order, so they didn't do it. The Ninth Circuit then clarified that that was not enjoined. Uh. Uh, lifted the injunction with respect to that. And so that review has presumably started now. So I think it's reasonable to expect that by the time they actually argue this case, all of the points of it will be uh, done. Now, could the administration extend it? Yes. Well, but also if they, as a result of the review, attempt to make permanent some of these restrictions, then the argument before the Supreme Court is still relevant. But that yes. would have to be a separate piece of litigation because that's not income because because this set of complaints that gives rise to this litigation doesn't challenge any subsequent order that so I think this case is very likely to moot out. Um and wow. so what I think the Supreme Court here has managed to do is a uh, subtly but substantially rebuke the lower courts for 
some genuinely aggressive behavior with respect to the president um, and his authorities under immigration law. Number two, avoid ruling on the merits itself, although whether that uh, happens. And three, and this is, I think, a, a, a kind of elegant uh, thing, prevent the hardest edges of the executive order from actually going into effect and letting the thing run its course without actually uh, harming people who have a real connection to people in the United States. Now, it's still going to be ugly, but it's going to be a lot less ugly than uh, it would have been if you'd just let the thing <laughs> go into effect. You know, I, I think that depends on how you define ugly, though, because there were two components of what happened in January that really sort of shook the public perception of this. One was um, the blanket ban. People right. are suddenly turned away. We're not, we're not issuing visas. We're not letting in refugees. But the other was the chaos, the uncertainty, the arbitrary enforcement by border officials Etc. And it seems to me that one result of this decision is even though it it's kind of delayed consideration of the ban overall, it's increased the chaos factor significantly with this uh, bona fide tie to the U.S. thing. Consular officials are not trained to think about that at all when they're issuing visas um, and it's not clear what it means. There's nothing in immigration law or policy that, you know, to which that refers. And so the the administration can essentially kind of construct its own guidance, but has to do it on the fly. And then you have these consular officers and DHS officials out in embassies and consulates all over the world, really not knowing what the hell is the right thing to do. And knowing that it's on their heads if somebody gets in that is later determined to be a real issue. And so it's, you know, especially during the summer season when there's a lot of demand, I think it's just going to make it really, really hard. So I agree. And I think it, there is going to be a lot of um, unfavorable stories as well, because you have a situation in which, you know, people are a sister in law counts, but a grandchild does not. And so for those groups of people that have what everybody understands to be a bona fide relationship, as they run up against this order, or if a more permanent order takes effect moving forward, um, they're going to have very... Um, uh, moving and unpleasant stories. And the question is just going to be whether or not there those sorts of stories start uh, having the types of political pressure that's going to make the administration soften or change its very harsh rhetoric and policy on these issues. So I think I think the other factor here, though, is that if the if the Supreme Court uh, had not lifted the stay at least a little bit, you know, and, and one 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 possibility was simply to deny cert. There was no conflict between the circuits, after all, and let the st leave the stay in place. And that would have been a real slap in the face to the president, and I would add to the presidency. Um, and uh, and it, but it would have been, uh, it would have maintained <laughs> the status quo, and it would have been quite defensible, in my view, given given the. Uh, uh, president's behavior in this instance, but it would have had some really substantial consequences, which are that, you know, leaving in place uh, at least one court of appeals ruling that basically says we get to 
you know, we get to look at uh, the president's tweets and campaign statements as evidence of his intent with respect to uh, an administrative record that purports to be complete in the national security context. And that would be a very uh, fateful thing to do. Um, and so I think the court had a lot of different uh, things that it was balancing here. And I think what they actually tried to do was kind of make it go away in a fashion that is least uh, least offensive to, to the president, uh, least burdensome to the individuals who may be affected by it, and doesn't require them to say either, yes, the president gets to do this, or no, he doesn't get to do this because of his tweets. And Can you and just explain why no one's name was on this thing? Oh, because uh, Justice Per Curiam uh, is, <laughs> famous is, is the author. So when, when the court wants to or when a court wants to send a message that it is speaking as a body, not as a bunch of individuals, it will sometimes issue an opinion for the court. Um, and that just means that you're still free to dissent from it. You're still free to write separately. But it means that the opinion itself is or the order itself is not uh, in, you know, John Roberts writing for the court for a majority with the following people signing. It's just the court speaking. Yeah. But what's the purpose of that? Is that to say, look how unanimous we are? Or is that nobody wants to put their name on this? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's it, it's not look how unanimous they are, although sometimes a procurium is unanimous. And in this case, it's not, uh, in this case, wasn't unanimous. Uh, Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito would all have gone further and and lifted the stay in, in, its, in its entirety. Um, they, um, it, it really is uh, the message, the court speaking as a court. Um, I think it's a response to sort of the rhetoric of the president, his attacks on individual judges, right? Think about the way he went after the the various judges who issued these orders. Um, there was even follow-up reporting that the marshal service had to provide some additional protection to some of those people. I, I do think it has actually a lot of symbolic weight to say, we're not putting this out there as the name. We are the Supreme Court of the United States, and we are speaking speaking as the court, considering how many times Trump has tried to essentially attack the legitimacy and independence of the court itself. So I do view it as sort of a, a sharp elbow, albeit one that Trump didn't receive because he thought it was a unanimous 9-0 decision. What? 9-0? <laughs> no. He couldn't even no. get the zero right. But, but one other thing, I also think it was a rebuke to the lower courts, both to the president and to the lower courts. And the lower courts, you know, had this, uh, you know, this this perception that they were kind of energetically and gleefully constraining uh, the executive. constraining yeah. the president uh, is not without at least some merit. And uh, the fact that they were quite divided, including along ideological lines, and they had, you know, the Republican, you know, certain Republican members dividing with certain uh, Democratic appointed members in very predictable and, and very, uh, you know, shrill fashions on both sides. And I think writing it as a procurium, I agree with Susan, both says to the president, look, this is how a court behaves. It also says to the lower courts, hey, guys, this is how a court it's, behaves. So it's basically the Supreme Court justices saying, guys, grow up. Yeah. 
Everybody and, just grow up. And, right? and, and remember that somebody has to be the grown-ups in the room. And, and when we're going to be the grown-ups in the room, by the way, we're going to do things that are themselves jurisprudentially quite unusual, like inventing a bona fide test out of thin air that has no, no place in U.S. immigration law. We're going to put that in and that's going to be our, we're going to do that based on our equitable discretion. But when we do it, we're not going to tell you whether it's Sonia Sotomayor writing it or John Roberts writing it. We're not going to tell you who agrees with what parts of it because we're going to behave like grownups. All right. Let's behave like grown-ups and move on to object lessons. Object lessons are for children. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have show and tell. <laughs> I have an object lesson. Did you? Is it from Italy? It is from Italy. Oh! I, you know, I, it had to be because I just got back from that vacation to Italy, oh, Shane. Oh, right. So. Where you were hanging out um, with like Dubai grocery executives. Exactly. In my, <laughs> yes. Um, it's, this is all my, my very uh, glamorous life, as you all know. Um, Why didn't you take me away? My... my uh, uh, Italian-themed object lesson, um, is an article um, that is an announcement by an Italian airport in Genoa that um, the uh, liquid ban on airplanes, they'd lifted, they'd made an exception for pesto. Um, <laughs> this checks <laughs> all pesto's, of... Pesto's it's not really a more of an emulsion. <laughs> so they had decided it was a liquid... <laughs> And this but really, ragu spaghetti sauce is not allowed. This really checks all of like my the boxes of my interest because it has both pasta sauce, Italy, where I was for vacation, Shane, um, and also like good old fashioned European protectionism because you can only do it for pesto from Genoa, <laughs> and so you great. have to pay an extra fee to do it. Um, so I really it was it was a moment of all interests being combined <laughs> in one beautiful. ridiculous airport security policy. Excellent. Isis is totally going to like move to Genoa and start hiding things. <laughs> Pesto bombs. Pesto bombs. Uh, ben, what's your object? So uh, this object lesson is in honor of uh, uh, my former research assistant and Lawfare's uh, former associate editor, Cody Poplin, Cody. Uh, who, when I installed a fountain in my office, um, walked in one day, looked at the fountain shook his head in good-natured disgust and said, Ben, your office is becoming a parody of your office. <laughs> and, um, and so the other day when... He's not wrong. He's not wrong. The Jungle Studio... Uh, someday we'll have to post some pictures of the Jungle Studio. Um, but um, the other day when Donald Trump was in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and put his hands on that glowing orb, I thought to myself, you know... The Jungle Studio needs a source of power like a glowing orb. Um, so we got a glowing orb. Um, and I got to say, I was disappointed with the yeah, glowing it's orb. It's not really glowing. It's, it's no, definitely it's orb. It's really lame. It's kind of lame. Yeah. And so I thought, but we do need some source of power that we can all sort of gather around and, 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 and derive uh, power from. And so I uh, got a Himalayan salt lamp. Which is now sitting by the fountain. It's not. It's not really uh, orb shaped, though. No, it, it's not. But it is glowing. It is glowing. And, um, and Are it is like salt. edible salt crystals. They're actual, actual salt, salt crystals. crystals. That's a hell of a lot of Himalayan salt. Yeah, it's a lot of salt. 
Um, is the idea that we're, you're supposed to use this? Thing? No, I think it's really that you're supposed to shine light through it, which and is what it's that doing. Those wonderful iodine ions are released by the warmth oh, of the lamp into yeah. the atmosphere. It gives you a good aura. Oh, it's calming. That's and why I feel so good. Since it's we can't feel- all go to Italy, Susan, mm-hmm. we need some calming. So I, I think <laughs> that we've insta- I've installed it next to the fountain. Uh, and um, and to Cody Poplin, I say, double down on the parody. <laughs> Tomorrow, what's your object? Okay, well, my object is a little more prosaic because I didn't have great people like Cody to inspire me, and I didn't get to go to Italy. Um, so my object is the video of H.R. McMaster's uh, interview um, at the CNAS conference yesterday. I really do commend it to everybody. There were a lot of little tidbits in there on issues from um, American objectives in Syria uh, with respect to Iran versus ISIS, about North Korea and the change in approach that the administration is signaling about, as I mentioned earlier, Russian uh, information operations about alliances. Um, And for those like myself who were disturbed by the McMaster Cone op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, um, I think this was a chance to see McMaster speak about these issues at greater length and with some greater nuance. Uh, In some ways, I found it reassuring. In other ways, I found it uh, a surprising readiness on McMaster's part to, in a fairly political way, defend some of his boss's more indefensible moves like refusing to um, commit to Article 5. So uh, I do, I really do think it's worth a watch and uh, we'll post it to the website. Unfortunately, CNAS has the whole video of their conference in one long loop but the McMaster portion starts about an hour and 40 minutes before the end. And we'll put that time marker on the website. Excellent. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can tweet us at RATL Security. If you have salt lamps that you'd like to share with mm-hmm. Ben, tweet him at him. <laughs> and if there's you probably have, a whole subculture or other about things this. that can add to the jungle studio yeah. music the jungle we just or if you have ideas yes if you yet. have ideas for sources of power and <laughs> nourishment that we can add just to this do. closet of a studio there are a few spots in the jungle studio that are not yet occupied by things <laughs> oh we'll find them by we haven't even hung anything from the ceiling or yet or scotch or plants or salt lamps oh my please remember when you download the podcast from Apple Podcast or Stitcher or wherever you do your podcasting catching uh, to leave us a five-star review or, you know, a five Himalayan salt crystal review, if you will. (laughs) Uh, We really appreciate it. It helps people find the podcast. And again, thank you so much for all the great reviews you've all been leaving. We really appreciate it. It helps us out. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music was performed this week by the cast of Tillerson. (laughs) Excellent. By the way, the show is Brought to you by Tillerson. They're our sponsor. Tillerson the musical. Tillerson the musical. Tillerson the musical. Of course, the music is performed by Sophia Yan, who, when we do have to come up with the orchestration for Tillerson, will be the first person. And with whom we have a bona fide relationship. Totally. Right. So you can't keep Sophia out of the country. No, can't do it. On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.